Bibles now ahead of time to Genesis chapter 1. We'll get there in a few minutes, but if you want to know the first stop of where we're headed, Genesis chapter 1. Now, as many of you know, we're studying through Luke's gospel, but this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll be taking a brief detour. Part of that is to align up Luke chapter 2, the birth narrative of Jesus, with all of the Sundays of Advent, the Sundays starting after Thanksgiving and going up through the Christmas season. And the secondly is because periodically as we study through books of the Bible, um, we intentionally, I intentionally want to pause and address topics and issues, especially topics and issues that face Christians every day that we may not otherwise be able to study. And so if you think back, we've, we've taken a week and looked at the issue of what is water baptism, and we've looked at what is the Lord's table, and we've, we've looked at a number of specific issues that as Christians we, we interact with every day, week, month, and we want to study. And what we're going to look at this Sunday and next Sunday is something probably even more immediate and more in our faces. This Sunday we're going to look at the issue of work, a theology of work, and next week, the corresponding theology of rest. And all of us do work of various kinds. Don't, don't think when I say work, I mean only work for pay. Whether it's children learning to walk, which is work, doing hard things, whether it's, it's going in and doing your nine to five, whether it's um, being a homemaker, whether it's the work of prayer, we're, we're all called to work. And the danger of that, something we live with every day, is if we think wrongly about it, then something that we're living every day, we're going to think wrongly about, we're going to bear bad fruit. And my goal this morning is to help us understand as Christians, as the redeemed of the Lord, how should we think about, how should we approach our work? That The danger is that we would view our work as simply burden, as simply that which we have to get out of the way, or a necessary evil. And the scripture can speak of the toil. In Psalm 90, Moses writes, You bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. And they are soon gone. So it's one way to look at work. Toil and trouble. The author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, opens the book Speaking of the vanity, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? That can be a question we think. What's, what's the use? What's the point? Am I simply working for a paycheck? Am I simply working for something to do? I, I think the answer in the Bible is far greater, is far richer, far fuller, and we will begin our theology of work, and theology is just a... Fancy word for the knowledge of God. Theos, Greek God. And ology would be the science of the knowledge. And so what we're trying to understand is work as it relates to the knowledge of God. Or as God has revealed his mind and his will, how does that knowledge relate to work? That's what we mean by a theology of work. How as Christians we approach this? So we're going to look at this in four points. And if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 1, we will begin. The first point of work is this, understanding work. And labor and toil is this. Work is good. That's your blank. Work is good. Now, it can be difficult. It can be laborious. Labor is often laborious. But it is fundamentally good. If you're, if you're here thinking work is a necessary evil, work is, is a bad thing, you are wrong. 
And hopefully you will see that. The first reason for that is God works. And God doesn't do evil. The scripture is explicitly clear on this. In Exodus 20, verse 11, explaining the necessity of the Sabbath rest, because there's a correspondence between work and rest. Exodus 20, verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. God worked. But he didn't just work back in the creation week. That's sort of a deist notion. The deist notion is that God sort of made this really complicated clock and now he sort of stands back with his arms folded and he lets it run. And that's just the notion that God just did some work in the creation week and then he sort of stands back and gravity does gravity's thing and the winds do their thing. No, that's, that's not the biblical picture. Jesus is emphatic on this point. When he's challenged about healing a man on the Sabbath, his answer to the Pharisees in John 5 is this. My father is working until now, therefore I'm working. Because God is working, Jesus says, and God works on the Sabbath, he works on the Sabbath. According to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is at this moment upholding all things by the power of his word. Ephesians 1.11, God is working all things. Is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He hunts the prey for the lion. He feeds the ravens where they cry to him for food. He tells the thunder clouds and the rain clouds where to go. He, he is working and at work. He is imminent in and around us. God works, therefore, Point A, the blank, it is godly to work. That's pretty straightforward. It is godlike. It is like God to work. It is godly to work. God works. He is working. It is godly to work. Second, second observation is God gave work to man, by that I mean mankind, before the fall. We may be tempted to think that work is simply a result of the curse. Work is a result of sin, and that's where we can get this notion that work is a necessary evil. That is not the case. And if you're in Genesis chapter 1, let's take a look at a few passages. Start in Genesis 1, 28. After creating the man and the woman. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's God's mandate at creation to the man and the woman. The work they are to do, the task that is given to them. He didn't just make them so they could frolic in a garden. They had work to do, things to accomplish. More specifically, look in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and Keep it. Explicitly, the concept of work predates the fall and the curse. Now we're going to see in our next point, yes, the fall, the curse, changes the nature of work. But as a concept, we dare not begrudge the fact that God has things for us to do, that he has activities for us to do. He has work for us to accomplish. It's good. God works. Work was part of God's plan. And, and as far as we can piece together the, the arrangements of life in the kingdom and, and in the eternal state, there will be work to do there, tasks to accomplish. In case you think of heaven as you'll just be sitting on a cloud, staring at Jesus entranced, doing nothing. That's not the full picture that I see in the New Testament. There's, there's gates and nations coming and going and the tree of life for the healing of the nation. There's, there's an, 
There's activity being done in the new heavens and the new earth, as far as, as far as I can read and see. So from before the fall until after the fall and through the fall, God making man in his image to reflect his character. God works, we work, he has work for us to do. It is good. So yes, chapter 3 of Genesis, under the curse, work will be difficult. Work will be difficult. And it is right for us to understand that because of the curse and because of sin, work can be laborious. It can be, as the scripture speaks of, as toil. This is the curse that God gave to Adam for his sin in verse 17 in chapter 3. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles I shall send forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till the ground Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the, 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 the labor and the toil, the pain and the difficulty of work, that was not part of God's original plan, and that is not part of God's future plan. So there is a sense in which we can recognize the difficulty, the, 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 the labor, the pain of work is not a good thing. But, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't, don't think, therefore, work is bad. Rather, because of the curse, because of sin, work is difficult. Work is difficult, but it is good. Secondly, we see, not only is work good, but work is holy. Work is holy. You see, there's a, there's a danger as Christians, and I think this is a very common danger that Christians fall into, of separating things into the sacred and the secular, into the holy and the common. It's, it's, I can understand why we'd make that mistake, for in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, everything was set up so there's the clean and the unclean. There was the sacred or the holy. Holy just means set apart. And there was the common. So there was the holy shovels that were holy to the Lord, not because they were morally pure, but because they were only for service, removing the ash from the altar. And then common shovels, you could dig any old hole you wanted. And so in Leviticus 10.10, the priests are said, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. So under the Mosaic law, Israel is constantly faced with the holy, the common, the clean, and the unclean. And one of their tasks is to separate those things. That's why there's some meats and some animals there to eat and some that they weren't, because they're to understand that God is holy. But this is one of the discontinuities. This is one of the changes in the covenants. This is one of the things that has not remained the same. Now, when we studied the book of Zechariah and we looked at the Messianic kingdom, one of the things we saw in our very last messages, I'll just read to you, is this prediction. Zechariah 14.20. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And what he's saying is the most common instruments, bells on horses, you can say bumper stickers on cars will be holy to the Lord. And the pots, the everyday folk used to make their meals and bake, they will be holy as the, the vessels in the temple. And the reason for that is because God will be king over all the earth. And that, and that is a reality we live in. And it's based upon, listen to 1 Peter 2.5, 
It's based upon, and this is one of the rediscoveries of the Reformation, the priesthood of the believer. You remember we talked about Roman Catholicism a few weeks back, and, and in that system, there are priests, which is a subset of Christians. In that system, I might be a priest, and I would put on priestly vestments, and, and you would be the laity, the, the, the non-priest. But listen to 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're all priests. If you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus to be your Savior, if you've been born again, you are priests and priestesses to the living God. And therefore, by, by virtue, everything you do is holy and sacred. That, that's the logic undergirding statements that Paul makes, like 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do everything to the glory of God. Everything you do, everything I do, can be holy if we do it in the right heart and the right attitude. This is why thinking through our work is important. The blanks here, by the way, everything is sacred. Nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. God demands our loyalty and our faithfulness in every area of life. And the danger is to start cording off your life. So Sunday's God's day, and that's the special day. And then Wednesday's me and the boys' day. Now, if you're simply dividing what you're going to do on different days, that's fine. But if you view Wednesday as your day in some special sense, that, that it's more your day than other days. No, they're all God's days. There's not a single aspect of your life, there's not a single molecule in the universe that the resurrected Lord does not say, mine. This is the logic of Colossians 3, 16 to 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, get that, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Else, whether you eat or drink. Now think that through. What Paul is saying, and this is the implication that brings us to point B, is if everything we do can be done to the glory of God, then by implication, everything we do cannot be done to the glory of God. Right? What's the point of telling us whether we eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God, if the contrary wasn't a possibility? That means you can eat or drink not to the glory of God. You can brush your teeth to the glory of God. You can not brush your teeth to the glory of God. You can work to the glory of God. You can work to the glory of something else. Point B, this means ultimately that we will either work for the Lord or for idols. This is why thinking through work matters. Because God wants us to glorify him in the work that we do. And the possibility certainly exists that we will not. Let me read for you um, what Paul says to slaves in Colossians chapter 3, 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. You get that? As, a, as, a, as a, an employee, as a servant, as a slave... You can do your work simply as a people pleaser. You can fear man. Or you can do it to fear the Lord. 
can do it for idolatrous reasons. You can do it for the Lord. Ultimately, everything we do will serve the Lord or idols. We'll either work for the Lord or for idols. Opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at this clearly. Actually, Ephesians chapter 6. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 6. Then we'll take a look at 5. In Ephesians 6, even spelling it out more clearly, Paul says this. Bondservants, verse 5. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Your work. If you do your work this way, is holy. And as priests, you're offering sacrifices to God that are acceptable. Understand, one of, the, one, of the, one of the rediscoveries of the Reformation, the priesthood of the believer, the holiness of all of life, that if you do your work faithfully, whether it be digging a ditch, driving a bus, programming computer code, working at a bank, if you do it not as a people pleaser, not with eye service, but hardly as unto Christ, it is just as holy, it is just as sacred, it is just as valuable as what I'm doing right now. Understand that. What, what you do with your work, what you do with your labor matters. God wants you. Paul's instructing. He's showing the two ways. You can do it simply with your eyes down here on the people, or you can do it as unto the Lord. And when we do it as unto the Lord, it is holy. When we do it for other reasons, it is idolatry. It is idolatry. Turn back just a chapter in Ephesians 5. You see that clearly. Ephesians 5 5. You may be sure of this, everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater. Covetousness is idolatry. And it's quite possible to work simply because we want more stuff. We want to live in a bigger house. We want to drive a nicer car. We want more goodies. And that's why we're working. If we're working out of covetousness, out of a desire to get rich, Paul calls that idolatry. Or you can listen to the language of 1 Peter, I mean 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich, and get it, being rich isn't the problem. Some of us, the Lord will bless, some of us will inherit, some of us will prosper. It's the desire to be rich. Nothing wrong with riches. The problem is wanting riches. But it says this, 
We have food and clothing with these will be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We can work for money only, and it's idolatry. And we will run the risk of ruining our souls. Or we can work as to the Lord. Now the good news is, commonly, if you're working not to please men, but to please the Lord, you will end up pleasing men. There's nothing wrong with wanting your boss to think you've done a good job. But you've got to set your sights higher than that. And there is the possibility sometimes that actually working as unto the Lord will actually set you at odds with your co-workers. My, my brother-in-law, Dave Golden, he's, he's now a pastor in New York, but for a number of years he, he worked as a plumber. And I think he took this seriously. And he, and he knew the codes. And he knew what he was supposed to do. What, what he discovered is the men he was working with would cut corners. And they would complain for two reasons. One, his quality of work made them look bad. And his work took a little slower. And they wanted to move along. But because he was doing his work as unto the Lord, as the codes required, it actually can put you at odds with your coworkers. Now, usually that's not the case. Usually Christians who are working as unto the Lord will find that their masters are very pleased. But it's not always the case. And if all you're concerned about is making your boss happy, if that's, if that's as high as your sight goes, you're not going high enough. You're not going high enough because it's all holy. Everything is sacred. Nothing is secular. And either we are working to serve the Lord or idols. Or idols. And, and there's a danger with this because what we'll see in our next point is that frequently the result of hard work and industry is prosperity. Cotton Mather speaking of the Puritans, said that they came to America meaning to do good that ended up doing well. That's the difference between an adjective and an adverb. They came meaning to do good but ended up doing well. The danger is, again, Cotton Mather, that, pro- that faithfulness will beget prosperity and the child will devour the mother. That's the danger. So we've got to check ourselves and what our motives are. And make sure that we're offering up the work we do to the Lord. It is pleasing to him. It is holy. It is good. We need to examine ourselves. And I don't just mean here vocational work as well. I mean all types of work. I don't just mean the work you get for a paycheck, but all the work we do. Because point three, work is required. Work is required. Now, if you flip over your bulletin, you'll see the, the big passage in Thessalonians that makes it clear. But I want to see in all, in all walks of life, work is not optional. It's good, it's holy, but it is required. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but we gave you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you the command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's not optional. 
Now again, I'm, I'm not simply speaking about work for pay. I'm not speaking about whether you get a paycheck. It does not determine whether or not you are working. The contrast is idleness. Maybe another way to say it is this. There is no valid point in life where all that you're to do is be idle. God has not called anyone to a life of idleness. Now, there are seasons of rest. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that next week. Rest is a good thing. Rest is the corresponding contrast to work. But, but no one is called by God to just rest and be idle. Paul speaks of the dangers that that falls into. But not just men working with their hands, but, but, but in, in Titus chapter 2, listen to Paul's instruction to the older women. Titus chapter 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The older women are training. That sounds like work. The young women are being trained and discipled. This isn't just something for men. This isn't just something about paychecks. And this isn't something that you just stop doing when you reach a certain age. It's okay to transition. Retirement, if by retirement you mean transitioning from working for money to other types of work to other types of, of activity, is fine. The notion of retirement, the, the American notion of retirement, of just sort of be free, be idle, just hang out, is, is not something we find in the Bible. Listen to the qualifications for the, for the widow's list. Remember, widows... Um, to be considered for the list, have to be 65 years or older. And Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy 5.5, 5, speaking of who to put on this list. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She's active. She's work. Work of prayer. That's work. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Paul understands that that for an older widow, there's two possibilities. She will fill her days with good things, useful things, godly things, or she can live a life of self-indulgence. We can live lives of self-indulgence. And Paul says, understand, the person who does that is dead while they live. God has called all of us to work. He's called all of us to seasons of rest as well, but he's called all of us to various types of work. Even if you are, find yourself in a place where you don't have employment, you're unemployed, God still called you to work because looking for work is a form of work. My children are called to the work of growing up and learning how to tie their shoes and, and learning how to fold, fold laundry and, and do the dishes and the chores at home. It, it's for all areas of life that God has given us things to do. It is required because of that, I want to look at two points here. The first, God will bless, if we, if we do our work with the right attitude, if we do our work as worship, if we do our work as holy, if we do our work as unto him, God blesses our faithfulness and labor. Correspondingly, God disciplines our idleness and sloth. God blesses our faithfulness and labor. Now, you can in advance get to Proverbs 31. That's where we're going to end up here on this first point. And, and it's in two senses, physically and spiritually. There's physical blessings and rewards for being hardworking, and there are spiritual blessings. Now understand this, Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18 says this, beware lest you say in your heart, my power, my might, my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for he it is 
who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God has established a reaping and sowing principle. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, the Son of Man had nowhere to rest his head. But in general, if we sow and if we work, we will reap. You'll reap. Jesus makes that clear. 1 Timothy 5 18, Paul quoting Jesus, the laborer deserves his wages. This is a principle that God amens. And, and turn with you now to Proverbs 31. We're just going to look briefly at this idealized, godly wife in Proverbs 31. Let's pick it up in verse 15. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself in strength. She makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the staff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens the hand to her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known among the gates when he sits in the elders in the land. We could read on. This is a woman. It's idealized. It's not saying, ladies, you all need to go you know, sell property and learn how to you know, spin. No. She's industrious. She's, she's honoring her husband at home, but she's also she's doing work. And she's staying up late and she's rising up early. What's the point? She's filling her day with profitable good things. What's the result? Is she afraid of winter coming? No. No. It doesn't mean she's rich. It just means she's, she's prepared. There's a sense of if, we, if we're industrious, if we do the work that's set in front of us, we need not be afraid of what is coming. And there's a general sense in which we'll be prepared financially, physically for what's coming. I understand. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I understand there are exceptions. You can read Ecclesiastes about that. But in general, that's the, the order of reaping and sowing that God has set up. These are the physical blessings. If we will work hard, if we will be studious, if we will give ourselves to the task he's given us, our needs will be supplied. We need not be afraid of the winter coming. There's also spiritual blessings. There's also spiritual blessings. Now listen, listen to this. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12. Sweet, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. One of the, one of the blessings of work is rest. One of the blessings of work is rest. And, and Ecclesiastes says, even the workman who's worked hard all day, even if he goes to bed hungry, his, his rest is sweet. It's a delight. He pictures in contrast a rich man whose stomach is full of delicacies, tossing and turning in his bed. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed lit, rest, late, re and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil. He gives his beloved sleep. You get the picture, the contrast? There are those who work 
the right attitude for the Lord. There are those who don't. And the contrast is those who don't are afraid, they're anxious, it's toil. The contrast is not anxiety, but rest and peace. There's a sense of satisfaction and contentment. You know the feeling when you've done a good day's work, when you've spent your day profitably and you can sit down and, and, and your conscience is affirming that you've been faithful. There's a self-satisfaction in that. One, one more passage, Galatians chapter 6. Even as we are to bear one another's burdens and loads, Paul recognizes each one is to test his own work. For then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for we'll each have our own load to bear. And Paul's saying that when we recognize what God has portioned out for us, the responsibilities that God has given us, the work that is for us to do, all types of work, laboring in prayer, raising children is work, amen? Okay. At least my wife tells me it is. Um, no, labor, raising children is work. Um, Prayer can be work. Loving people, loving your neighbor can be work. Especially some of you. So I don't just mean paychecks and remuneration. But there's a blessing to working hard. And there's a blessing of satisfaction and, and recognizing. And maybe I'm not doing it perfectly, but I am, I am fulfilling what God's calling me to do. There's physical blessings or spiritual blessings. But there's also discipline when we fail to work, when we procrastinate when we set aside we know there are things God's called us to do and for whatever reason we don't do it there's physical discipline and there's spiritual discipline we already saw the first bit of the physical discipline the sleeplessness of the the idle rich there's a great irony way to get this there's a great irony that that for the sluggard and that's the term the bible frequently uses the idle or the sluggard the one who who doesn't want to work doesn't want to do hard things There's an irony. You'd think the person who lounged around all day watching TV, lying in bed all day, you'd think that person would be the most rested, the most vigorous, the most ready to go. In your experience, you know that's not the case, don't you? Sloth begets sloth. The rich, with his full belly, can hardly see. He's tossing and turning. His his rest isn't, isn't sweet. It's difficult. We saw already the, the, the anxiety of those who aren't working for the Lord. But, but listen to Proverbs 21, 25. Proverbs 21, 25. You can turn there if you'd like. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Now get this. All day long he craves and craves. The righteous gives and does not hold back. The concept is this, that when you feed the desire for sloth, when you, when you feed that desire, when you get, instead of going away and being satisfied like some desires, you know, if you're hungry and you, you eat a cheeseburger, you stop being hungry, here's a desire that when you feed it, when you say, yeah, I'll call in today, I'll just hang out on the couch, actually the craving grows. That's what it says. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves. No, it's not satisfied. Now, we'll look next week at godly rest, the notion of rest. There is a, there is a, a notion of rest and leisure that is good and right. But fruit that is stolen or eaten out of season is sour. Or a little further in Proverbs 
26. It's a comical picture, really. Proverbs 26. The sluggard says, verse 13, there is a lion on the road. There's a lion in the streets. The implication is I can't go to work today. The terror alert is set on red. There's a lion in the streets. It's supposed to be comical. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hands in the dish. It wearies him out to bring it back to his mouth. Again, rather than being filled with strength and vitality, rather than saying, wow, you've been resting. You must be strong and raring to go. Here's somebody. It's, again, it's a comical picture. It's a sad picture of somebody so exhausted, so weary, so tired. They put their hand in the bowl. It's like you're reaching in for the Dorito in the bowl and you just kind of, I'll just use my Jedi mind power to get that back out. <laughs> just sort of hanging out there. It, it, it just grows the craving. Feeding sloth just begets more sloth. And ironically, in verse verse. 16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. We all met the people who think they've found the key to life. They've, they've found the corners to cut. They've found the, the way to get by with as minimal work as possible. They think they're smart. And, and the Proverbs indicate the foolishness and the folly. But more than that, there's a, there's a, there's a sense in which sloth gets a downward spiral that, that can, can just sort of snowball. I'm not saying this is the case with everybody, but there are people who get so discouraged and so depressed, they'll stay for days at a time in bed, unable to do anything. And I, and I know there's a lot of factors that can go into that, but I certainly think one of the most common is this cycle that sloth leading on. And let, me just, let me just read you a quote. Jay Adams, in his, in his book on, on counseling and dealing with work, says, Someone may say to me, why am I so tired on a day when I haven't done anything? Why am I so tired when I wake up after a full night's sleep? Often the answer is something like this. Because in spite of what you think, you have been working hard. When you go to bed after a day when you've done little productively, you have probably worked harder than if you dug a five-foot ditch. You were nervous, worried, concerned, angry, dissatisfied with yourself and others. This brought about muscular action in which your muscles became tense, but because you did nothing physical to productively release that muscular energy, the muscles didn't relax. They went on hour after hour, taut as ever, using up energy unproductively, tiring you out. You may have gone to bed with those muscles still tied in knots, tossing and turning all night. No wonder you were tired in the morning. What happens is, the danger is this. We, we get up one day, and for some reason, maybe we got the cold... Maybe we just don't feel good. We ate something that disagrees with us. Maybe some bad news happened. Whatever it is, we become discouraged. And because we're discouraged, we think to ourselves, you know what? One of the things that God's called me to do today, I'm not going to do. We leave some duty unfulfilled. I don't want to spend time with my kids today. I just want to watch some TV. You know what? I don't need to do any laundry today. You know what? I'm not going to work as unto the Lord today. I'm just going to get by at work. What happens is, you, you, at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, you first have this, this principle of reaping and sowing that, that when you feed that desire, it just wants more. So now the cravings for sloth are greater. But as a Christian, now you've got the conviction of the Holy Spirit on you. Because you know, according to James, to know the good you should do and not to do it, to him it is sin. So now you've got this double whammy. You've, you've got 
a greater desire for leisure, adding on the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then you get the next day, you even more don't want to do stuff. And so you set aside another thing that you should do. And you can very quickly get to a point where you're doing nothing. You're doing nothing. God did not design us for idleness. God did not design us for that. God disciplines it both physically and spiritually. Physically, we, we just know the basic concept that you don't have anything. Proverbs 24, 30 to 34 says this, I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered, I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and your poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. We saw earlier Paul's instruction, if someone's not willing to work, the concept obviously is assuming they're able. They're able but unwilling. Let them not eat. Let them not eat. God disciplines that. And, and the danger is the person who's, who's the sluggard, the person who's being idle, thinks they found the key to life. They think they found the way to get by. Well, finally, let's, let's look at our last point. Work is good, work is holy, work is required, work is subordinate. Work is subordinate. See, there's, there's always two dangers. We can make too little of work. We can just think of it as something we do. It's unimportant. It doesn't matter how I do it. We've learned differently this morning. No, God cares. He wants us to offer our work up to him. It's good. It's holy. It's required. The other danger is just to make work into God making it too important. Work is subordinate. It's a vital and important part of our life. It is not our life. Just really simply here, two points. The first, Christ, Christ, not vocation, gives identity. Christ, not vocation, gives identity. It is too easy, especially with vocational employment, to identify ourselves first and foremost as what we do. And the Bible says again and again and again, no, Christ is your identity. You're a Christian who works at a bank. You're a Christian who programs computers. You're not first and foremost a programmer, a banker, a plumber, an electrician. You are a Christian. Listen to Paul. And Paul's in the Philippians chapter 3. You know this passage. Paul he, he, he could have identified, he had a pedigree of credentials. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul could have found his identity being a Pharisee, and being a Jew, being a Christian persecutor. Indeed, whatever I had, whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Christ gives us our identity. The reason that's an important point to make is this. If you have found ultimately your identity in your job and what you do, when you lose that job, when you're unable to do that job, your sense of identity will crumble. You won't know who you are. 
Because idols can never ultimately satisfy. Idols can never ultimately fulfill. They will let you down. Don't, don't find your sense of worth and self in your work and your job. It's, it's good. Paul says, look at it. Feel good that you're working. Your identity's in Christ. And finally, Christ, not vocation, is the organizing principle of our lives. Christ, not vocation, is the organizing principle of our lives. What I mean to say is this. There's a danger of making work into God. I mean, just think of how many hours people spend in school, how many dollars, how many thousands, in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars people will spend preparing for a vocation. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. We will spend inordinate amounts of time, years of our lives preparing ourselves for vocational work, study, going to school. Understand there's other work that God has called you to as well, and he expects us to prepare for and take that seriously as well. Fathers, God's called you to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's the work he has also given you to do. The charges to fathers, not to mothers, to fathers. How much preparation, how much time, how much training have you pursued? Now, if, if work is God, then you'll just move everything around work. People will move from one part of the country to another part of the country. If work is God, then of course you move up the ladder. Have you ever stopped and considered, though, that moving up to the next step, the next level of promotion, you might make 20 grand more, but you lose 15 hours a week with your family and church. Maybe that's not a trade-off you're willing to make. If work is God, then of course you go as high up as you can go. If God is God, if Christ is God, then we realize that while a major part of our life is vocation, it is not our identity, and life needs to be organized around Christ and his priorities. There are people who, in, in, in pursuing more than they need, in pursuing more than is necessary, trying to climb the corporate ladder, have, have, have sacrificed their families, sacrificed their children, sacrificed their church relationships on the altar of vocation. That's not good and that is not right. Christ has much and manifold work for us to do. I'll just read one passage and we'll, we'll be done. But Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He wants us to present every aspect of our life with Christ ordering our time. Christ, as you think through this, measuring out, metering out your time for work for money, your time to spend with your wife and family, your time for service in the church, your, your time breaking it up so that you can tr- attempt to pursue all the things that God has called you to do. Work is good, work is holy, work is required, but work is subordinate. And next week, we will learn about rest. As God has not only called us to work, he has also called us to rest, and ultimately he has given us rest in Christ. But that'll be next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just pray that you would give us hearts and attitudes that agree with your word. You have said work is good. Let us not grumble at it, complain about it, try to avoid it. Let us say it is good. You have said that work is holy when offered to you. And so, Lord God, let us offer our work to you. Let us not be man-pleasers and idolaters. Let us serve you and realize that all of our work is holy. All the tasks that you have called us to do are sacred. Lord, help us not to try to avoid our work, to minimize and do as little as possible, to realize that you've required of us these activities. 
But Lord, guard us also from the danger of making a God and an idol out of our work. Lord, help us to arrange our lives to please you as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.